Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. Uh, just a reminder that uh, next week I'll still be here in the Valley. The week after that, we head out on a major 25-day road trip uh, heading into Texas, uh, Oklahoma, just south of Nashville, or north of Nashville. I think it's a little north, north of Nashville. Uh, Going to be at Mark Grimaldi's church. Um, well, that's a that's a name from the past. Something tells me he's going to look a whole lot older than he did last time I saw him, as will I. Um, but I knew Mark back uh, during the days when we went to Long Island uh, in the 90s uh, and into the early 2000s uh, during the the decade of the great debates and things like that. But he has escaped New York <laughs> and uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be there. And uh, so, yes, um, and... Um, Rich's office right now is a complete disaster, um, because the majority of the basic material for the new studio is sitting there and he's going to be, he's going to be very, very thankful that I paid to have a 50 amp, uh, plug, uh, uh, circuit put into my home system, um, and then we bought, <laughs> we bought a, do you have any idea? No one who's never RV'd. Have you ever picked up, Rich, have you ever picked up a 50 foot long, 50 amp extension cord? I don't know how much metal there is in that thing. Uh, given how much it costs, it's a lot. But you know how to, you know who had to bring that in from the porch after his liver? It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, we were here. That was, it was delivered Tuesday. Kelly was home, not feeling real well, and uh, I said, hey, there's a package up front, <laughs> and my poor little wife had to bring in that uh, 50-foot-long, 50-amp extension cord, um, but Rich will be happy that we have that, uh, because as he is, as I'm putting stuff in the back of the RV, he'll be putting stuff in the front of the RV, and both air conditioning units will be running, I'm sure. Um, it's not going to be hot for us. I think it's 93, 95 for a high somewhere around in there. For us, even in late April, that's nothing. Uh, we've we've blown through 100 many times in the past. Got close just last week. Hit 99 once. Anyway, so he's going to be putting all this stuff together. And you get to watch as we figure all this stuff out. Because it will, it will require... Uh, there, there'll be some whoopses and stuff like that is a learning curve on the stuff in there that I'm going to have to be learning how to do and stuff like that, but I'm excited about it. Uh, I hope everybody else is too. Uh, obviously once I get really good at it, then we can start doing more than just me sitting there. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm hoping someday, uh, to do a debate in there. Why not? Um, might as well. Uh, it's that not with somebody else in the in the actual unit that could be dangerous. <laughs> but uh, online, we'll see we'll see what happens with that. So yeah, so that's coming up, and that means um, not next week, but the week thereafter, uh, we will have uh, on the road uh, dividing lines, a road trip dividing lines going on, and. Uh, in the new unit. It'll be exciting. You can still help us with that. Uh, in the spirit of the sister who was talking about buying another uh, uh, knob for another kitchen drawer, uh, you can do the same thing uh, as well at aomin.org and help us to finish paying off the uh, the whole project. Um, at the same time, you know, you look out over the world and you see Beautiful, good things, and you see unbelievably horrible things all at the same time. This morning, I carried my phone with me. Well, I always carry my phone with me, but I kept it out so I could watch. Um, I was doing a walk, doing uh, more walking uh, these days, um, and uh, watched the SpaceX uh, launch of what I understand to be the most powerful rocket designed by human beings 
um, this morning and was very thankful that it got off the ground, got got way up there. And to be honest with you, um, it failed right as it was trying to do something I've never seen anybody else but SpaceX ever do, uh, where they they turn the rocket and do stuff like this. And I've just never, you know, NASA never even tried to do stuff like that. And uh, one of the things I really appreciated about it, you know, they were very excited about it. They were lowering expectations <laughs> from the start. Because <laughs> as soon as I tuned in, they're saying, you know, as long as it clears the launch pad, we'll be happy. <laughs> it's like, okay. All right, let's lower the expectations here as much as possible. Um, but one of the greatest things about having non-governmental entities, uh, having NGOs, um, you know, uh, the private sector uh, doing this is they have a sense of humor and they really seem to enjoy it. I, one of the things that was, I was listening and they had a microphone in the place where all their people were gathered and they're just going nuts during the countdown. You know, it would get past a certain point in the countdown. And there's those, just all excited. And, and uh, you know, that, that certainly added something to it, but they have a sense of humor. And so, so SpaceX tweeted, um, following the, and I don't have it right in front of me, I, I, I retweeted it, but following the exciting test launch of the Starship, um, we then had the spectacular sudden, sudden disassembly, <laughs> which is <laughs> a really cool way of saying, it blew up! <laughs> Sudden, yeah, yeah, unplanned sudden disassembly, I think is how, how they put it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that was, <laughs> that was true. Yeah, yeah, it, right. Yeah, okay, hold on a second. Now that I, now that I've done, now that I've done that, because uh, I, I specifically, yeah, here it is. As if the flight test was not exciting enough. Starship experienced a rapid unscheduled disassembly before stage separation. <laughs> Starship experienced a rapid unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> that means it just went boom. Undocumented enhancements. <laughs> I think it's just great. Hey, you know. They knew it could happen. In fact, I think they expected it to happen at some point. Um, <clears throat> and I just think it's awesome that... Because I'm sorry, NASA would never say that. Let's just be honest. Uh, you, you'd never... I, I just can never, ever imagine NASA talking about a sudden, unexpected... Where's Where's Marty the Martian when you need him? Yeah. yeah. It went kaboom! It went kaboom! <laughs> Yeah, it did, um, but it got way up there before it did it. And um, when you have 33 rocket engines firing all at the same time, uh, bad stuff can happen. So there's something good. I mean, you know, they're literally talking about uh, a manned space station on the moon, for crying out loud. Um, you know, when they do that, what do, what are all the skeptics? What are all the skeptics going to do about the moon landings? Are they going to say it didn't happen back then, but now it has happened or something? I don't know. I have no earthly idea. But um, anyhow, so you see something like that, and I'm like, wow, it's it's exciting. I mean, I'm a child. I I sat I sat in school more than once watching Apollo launches and moonwalks and and stuff like that when I was a kid. Uh, so I'm from back in that, that era and, um, it's exciting to see. I do have to sit here and go, how much carbon dioxide do 33 high powered rocket engines produce? <laughs> I mean, did that one test launch offset, um, every Tesla that has ever <laughs> been driven? <laughs> It really makes you, it really does make you wonder a little bit about that. Uh, <clears throat> that, uh, yeah, anyway. So you've got the good stuff. But then 
you may uh, again it's the issue of what media the state controlled media and I, I just love how Twitter has been putting titles on state owned media to call it state owned media <laughs> and they get all upset and we're not going to do it on Twitter ever again. It's like, okay, fine. We all knew all about you anyways. Um, and and at the same time, you know, all sorts of censorship going on on uh, YouTube and stuff like that. But uh, the biggest thing is, you probably didn't hear about it, but Washington State, Remember, there were it was uh, Washington, California, and I think Minnesota, if I recall correctly, were the three states um, right now that had bills in their legislature that basically had the same effect. Washington went first in giving to the state. Now, I, I know this will end up at the Supreme Court. And one heart attack... And one more socialist president, um, and the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's ability to maintain even the pretense of constitutional law will be done. Um, but Washington State has claimed the authority to give to itself the authority to remove children from a family, from a home, if the parents refuse gender care. Now, if anything illustrates the fact that language has to be based upon a worldview that requires honesty, that phraseology does it's it's like call it's you know it's reproductive health that means vacuum sucking the arms and heads off of an innocent child in the womb that's reproductive health that's reproductive care so you specifically and purposefully use language to hide the real meaning of what's going on so that you can scream about it out in the open and call anybody a bigot that is against providing gender-affirming care. Now, what is gender-affirming care? Gender-affirming care, from the time it starts, from the first thing, as long as you put some foreign substance in the body, whether it's cross-sex hormones, whether it's giving estrogen to a male or testosterone to a female, whether it is any kind of mutilation of healthy, undiseased body parts, mastectomies, removing sex organs, faking sex organs, all sorts of stuff like that. What you're doing the instant you start is you're condemning that person to lifelong degraded health and a much shortened Lifespan. I guarantee you, without question, without question, that any individual who has gone for 20 years injecting themselves with the hormones of the opposite sex will not live as long. There will be cancers. There will be degradations of body systems. You just watch. It's, there isn't any question about it. It is mutilation. It is sentencing someone to an entire life of dis-ease, disease. They will be a medical patient. They will have to be going into the doctor every few months for the rest of their life. That's what you're sentencing them to. And they will never, and once you do the surgery, they will never ever get to be what God created them to be. I have, at my age now, I have seen generations born 
and have come to recognize the spiritual reality of the beauty. And Scripture speaks of this over and over again. It speaks of the beauty of fatherhood, the beauty of motherhood, the beauty of the nurturing of the mother, of the infant upon her breast. And so what does an utterly corrupt, evil society do but convince young women that they should cut their breasts off? and pretend to be something they will never, ever, ever be. Their pelvis will never be a male pelvis. It will always have been designed to allow a baby to be born, because that was their, that was their intention. That was God's intention and in how they were created. And so, the state of Washington, in its abject hatred of God, and that's what it is, it is an abject hatred of the God that created us, formed us, gave us the understanding of what we are to be. And we have decided we hate that God. We hate his ways. And so we're going to go the opposite way. So Washington State has claimed that the state can now, if, if you will not go along with your 11-year-old daughter who, because you were stupid enough to give her a smartphone or to not have the proper filters on a computer or sent her off to public school where the purple-haired transgendered teacher in social studies uh, convinced her that she's actually a guy. Because that's how this all happened. This wasn't happening when I was a kid. There was nobody. Was there anybody in high school in in Prescott um, wearing uh, purple hair and who was a guy claiming to be a gal? What would have happened? Would they have never been seen again, probably? Bad bad things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nobody in my high school. This wasn't happening. And the, the numbers show it. All of the studies show this is something that has begun. Not that there weren't a tiny, 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 tiny number of people who had, quote-unquote, gender dysphoria. Not what we're talking about today. It has exploded since 2010. And what is required for the modern experience, TikTok, YouTube, smartphones, and an educational system filled with radicals who could care less if your kid can read, but they need to make sure that your kid is transgender. Um, if you, and I, I suggested this, I told everybody years ago when this book first came out, Irreparable Damage. It was interesting that even back then, and there's much, there's much more development since it came out, even back then, it was very clear that the majority of these individuals were in what we would call liberal households, liberal homes, because there weren't any barriers, weren't any guardrails to keep this insanity from infecting them. And so if your 11-year-old in Washington State comes home and says, I want to start taking Drugs that will not only stop puberty from taking place, um, but their chemical castration drugs for for males, anyways, and they likewise uh, end mental development too. <laughs> it's great. It's wonderful. Um, and mom and dad says, "No, honey. All you've got to do is go to your principal, go to your teacher, and report mommy and daddy." And the state will come and get you. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts that very shortly there will be another bill that will say that the state will need to provide the funding for the mutilation of your 11-year-old. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, yeah, they might throw mom and dad in jail, too. Um, That's possible. I mean... They won't throw murderers and drug users and stuff like that in jail. But if if you're if you're that evil, 
to not uh, affirm the great moral good, the new great moral good <laughs> that none of us had ever heard of before Obergefell in 2015. Um, but that was so long ago now, right? It's almost it's almost 10 years, right? <laughs> wow. Um, that's that's what we're that's what we're facing. Um, and there are many, many days. I know God can do anything, and God could bring, and I pray that God does bring a great awakening. It will have to be radical. It will have to be just so supernatural that can't be questioned or doubted in in the results, in the repentance that it would bring. That you want to know when a real revival is taking place? Is there repentance? Is there is there a detestation of that which God detests? Is there even a willingness to admit that God detests something? There are so many false teachers, so many fake Christians out there. I mean, we have got so much nominalism when it comes to the Christian faith. They won't even admit admit that God could ever detest anything. God doesn't. God is all love. So God loves everything and everybody, including everything that destroys his creatures. Yeah, no, he doesn't. The Bible doesn't teach a God like that, but there are a lot of people who claim that anyways. Um, I know that God could change this nation. I know that God could save this nation. But there are many days where I go, I think it's beyond saving. And I think it's going to become the example for centuries into the future of why secularism must never be allowed to spread its deadly poison ever, ever again. Um, We thought that the Soviet Union... We thought that the that the, the Holodomor, the 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 millions of people that were killed by Stalin and by the Soviets, the re, the repression, the we thought that would be enough. It would never happen again. What's happening again? Mankind's memory is absurdly short. Something's got to happen <clears throat> to make it very, very long. And it may be something really, really big. Like, remember the United States? The nation that put men on the moon and developed the, the SR-71. <laughs> what a... If you, if you don't know what the SR-71 is, you've missed out on a lot, to be perfectly honest with you in life. Um... And it's sort of sad that they're all sitting in museums and hangars no longer functionally being used. Um, Most amazing aircraft ever designed by mankind. No question about it. Um, If you saw Top Gun Maverick, that thing he was flying at the beginning was sort of, it looked like, it looked very much like the Blackbird. It wasn't, but it's sort of, Reminded all of us old folks of something like that. Yeah, that nation that did all that kind of stuff. First, in, well, not first in space, but first uh, to the moon and technology and all that wonderful fun stuff. Absolutely collapsed. Why? From within. Why? Because it embraced secularism and all the insanity that comes with it. Because that's what we're facing. Utter Insanity. We all saw the video of the guy today. I wonder. The FBI won't look into it. But you've got the guy on Twitter today. The video came out. Some transgender perverted individual saying, you try to keep me from going into the women's bathroom. That'll be the last thing you ever do. We all need to go out and get guns. And we, it's time for violence. And, and the FBI, will, to be honest with you, the FBI today is like, let's hope it happens. Let's hope it happens. That's that's the amazing part. And I keep saying, someday these videos we're seeing, these things going on, there's going to be museums to the insanity of man. Um, that's what's that's what's going to happen.
Now, speaking of insanity, amongst us uh, us Christians, I again am pretty uh, amazed at how many individuals were really quite upset at why any of us would have even the beginning of a problem with the phrase white evangelicals. And it seems like there are a number of people who start with a political definition rather than a theological definition, especially when the term is being used by Christians. It's one thing when the term is being used by some non-Christian secular sociologist, um, we all know it doesn't actually mean anything. Because it's just a description, and 99% of the time, they don't know what the evangel is. But the fact that you're putting a, a reference to the gospel together with an ethnicity, with a skin color, that's the issue. And I've seen people saying, well, why are, why are white evangelicals... Uh, embarrassed about being white evangelicals. Well, it's because if you're an evangelical, the rest of it shouldn't matter. That's why. If you're an evangelical, period, that's it. You go beyond that, and you don't understand the evangel part. There is no white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. It's we're all one, the gospel. And as soon as you start dividing it up, based upon, and what does white mean? When I was, I don't, you know, I I would imagine that these go through cycles. But if you read much on the history of our nation, you know that there are periods of time when there were immigrations from various parts of Europe, which allegedly, but to white people, And yet, you know that in the U.S., the Italians had tremendous challenges that they had to face. The Irish, tremendous challenges they had to face. Um, When I was young, what was the most common joke you'd have about the the Polacks? Uh, In fact, I'll bet you there's dozens of Polak jokes in All in the Family. I'll bet you Archie, I think, if I recall correctly, Archie told a lot of Polish jokes. Could never happen today, but it was very common then. And you look back at the history of New York and all the rest, that kind of stuff, and there have been tensions amongst white people, and no one was ever sitting around going, but we're all white people. What? No, we, we we recognized distinctions even then. And so the whole idea, you know, why would you be ashamed of your people? Because they're not my people. If you're a Christian, your people share your standing before God, <clears throat> your object of faith, and your people come to the same table. And again, I'm not trying to argue this is the way to do it because, to be honest with you, it's not as efficient. But I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you because I had never experienced it, and so let me just throw it out there. I've mentioned this before. Apologia does the Lord's Supper differently than I had ever experienced in any of the churches I was a member of. Part of it went back to how Apologia started out of a drug rehab thing and all the rest of that stuff and all that kind of thing. But now this is not actually super uncommon. It was just uncommon in my experience. We come forward to partake of the elements. We it, It's not in most churches I've been a part of you sit there and the deacons or whoever uh, passes the the tray of well it depends on the church you go to, but the little itty-bitty crackers or 
unleavened bread or whatever. And then they can have you can have church splits over whether you're using leavened bread or unleavened bread. <coughs> and then the tray of little cups of grape juice or wine or sometimes both in the same thing. You know what you have to both know which one's which. We don't do that. It's all wine at Apologia. Um, and then you pass that along, and some kid reaches up and knocks it over. <laughs> it's just, just, you know, it's, we, we all know how that works. Now, as far as efficiency and time goes, that's the way to do it, but to, to be, have everybody seated. You can get that done in a matter of minutes. Have everybody get up into two lines and come forward, 20 minutes. At least 20 minutes. But that's what we do. And so two of the elders, I'm normally one of the two. Now, if, if I've preached, I don't necessarily do this. But normally, myself and Luke, <clears throat> we stand there. And as the last of the cups of wine are taken, we take that tray off and move it out of the way so there's no, no, no one beneath it. So I get to watch everybody. And it hasn't been an issue, but there could be an issue where you've got someone who's under discipline that tries to partake the supper. You've got to guard the table. That's a whole other issue. I'm not getting into that today. But <clears throat> I get to stand there and watch. And it's it's a common element of my prayers when I introduce the supper um, to sort of talk about the unity of the body that is displayed. Because it doesn't matter what color your skin is, who your grandpappy was, what your ethnic heritage was, nothing. We've got white people and black people and Hispanic people and Asian people and Eastern European people and Russian people and doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at that table. And that's it, it, same thing at baptism. In the two ordinances that the Lord gave to his church, there is absolutely no place for ethnicity, for a recognition of ethnicity. There's the unity of the body. If you want your voting block, there's your voting block. But that's the problem, is when you start talking about voting blocks. So, when people, I have people literally, you're just, you're just embarrassed about your, your people. My people, my Scottish ancestors, I... I remember, I remember telling, I remember telling a pastor from Scotland that in my study of my um, ancestry, I was struggling to find out whether my line came primarily through uh, the McGregors or the Lamonts. And I remember him saying to me, oh, this is... I hope you're a lament, he says, and McGregor's are a bunch of pagans. <laughs> well, yeah. You know what? You go far enough back, and my ancestors were a bunch of pagans. Pasty white pagans from England and Scotland and Northern Europe. And they were pagans, and they were sacrificing to idols. So when you talk about your people... What actually identifies your people for a Christian? There isn't any question about this. There can't be any question about this. And that's why I react so strongly to those people who just don't get this. And you know who you are. I've seen your videos. And I'm worried about you. Because you're missing basic foundational stuff here. Really basic foundational stuff. Be warned. Be warned. Um, 
now we've got all these. I asked a brother, and I didn't. I haven't had a chance. Uh, once you start getting closer and closer to a trip, you've just got a lot of. There's a lot of stuff you got to remember to do. And some of it is just so ridiculously mundane. I had to make sure to bring in today, and I need to make sure that when I pack stuff up to put in the unit, you've got these little things that you you drop into the sewer system, <laughs> and you need to have them. They're very, very important. It's just one of a bunch of things that you've you just got to remember to you got to order them, or if you, where did I put them from the last trip? So I didn't get a chance to. <clears throat> interact with this brother on this, but I asked a question because these are questions. Look, the questions we're talking about when we're talking about what the future is supposed to look like, what, what is the church supposed to be doing right now? Most of my life, the church didn't say anything to the government at all other than don't raise my taxes. Most of the churches that I went to, there was nothing at all about the church's role in seeking to form the moral context of life in the United States. Okay, you had the moral majority. You had Jerry Falwell. But the problem was, Jerry Falwell and that form of fundamentalism wasn't based upon the theology that Jesus gave us at his resurrection when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because the theology of the majority of fundamentalism is Jesus has all authority of all types in heaven, but on earth it's just spiritual. There's nothing beyond that. And I, you know, so you don't you don't notice that when Paul is reasoning with um, was it Felix or Festus? Why do they have? Why do they both have to start with an F E? That's just that's just not fair. Um, he's reasoning with the governor from the scriptures, and he's talking about righteousness, self control, and the judgment to come. Now. One future conversation we are going to be having. <clears throat> I'm going to find the time to get this done. Is, is that judgment the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the judgment to come at the end of time? It's the judgment to come at the end of time, just so you know. But I realize there are people out there saying, yeah, nope, there's, there's only one judgment. And it was all in AD 70. No, it wasn't. And we're going to be doing a deep dive into Acts 17.31 and elsewhere in Acts to demonstrate that mellow does not always mean about to happen right now. There are people saying it, but they're wrong. And we'll demonstrate. Anyway, um, when Paul's talking about the judgment to come, he's talking to a governmental leader, and he is saying, you will be judged as a governmental leader because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is the one who's going to be doing the judging. So even so, the quote-unquote moral majority stuff back in the 80s was a, a reflection of the fact that we saw what was happening. But we didn't really have a coherent theology upon which to say much about it, in essence. And so I asked a question. I'll get around to it eventually. Um, I asked a question. I said, if God were to fulfill the many promises that he has given, and this is, this is where eschatology comes in. Our, we are having, we're experiencing something where most of us have an eschatology of tradition. It's what we were raised with. And it's, so, it's what we're comfortable with. And so what's really uncomfortable, and I've certainly experienced this, is when you start realizing that your eschatology, first of all, must be, I believe, must flow naturally from your theology. That's why I've changed my position. It has to flow 
consistently from your theology. But that also means that you then have to act in light of it. So I was raised in eschatology as a kid. Fascinating books. Loved reading them. Wow, look at what's happening in the European Union. Ooh, that looks like the ten-headed beast. And, you know, and then when you were done reading that, you put the book down over there, and then you live your life. And it's not like there's really any connection. Because that's over there, and it's not hooked in with your theology. So, I ask the question, if these promises of God uh, were to be fulfilled, and a majority of a nation were to be the recipients of God's grace, majority of a nation bows the knee to Jesus Christ, says, we want God's blessing upon our nation. And therefore, we want to live in light of his law. Would it be acceptable for that nation to inculcate, to put into effect laws that reflect, for example, would it be appropriate for a nation to outlaw abortion? Say, you you cannot do this. This is, this is the murder of an image bearer of God. And so it's a general, it's a very general question. And what I discovered was the responses have all been, yeah, but what about this difficult thing here or this test case there? Rather than, yes, in general... It would be appropriate to do that, because I think there are some conclusions, eschatological conclusions that some people come to, where they would still say, no, no, it wouldn't be. Even though, you know, I would then go, so on what basis do you ask for God's blessing upon your nation if your nation shows no interest whatsoever in bowing the knee to Christ? And you're either going to bow the knee to Christ or you're going to be in rebellion against Christ. This idea of a neutral somewhere in between, that's a real problem. I mean, you know, just simply on epistemological grounds, on apologetical grounds, this is another reason why a lot of... this. It's interesting that the... Natural law, Thomistic, classical apologetics approach, and the presuppositional approach. Not only do they have come to loggerheads there, but it it, it transfers over to here too. When you think about it, because a Thomistic approach allows for the natural law perspective allows for neutrality a middle ground, or a pretended neutrality, where you're not specifically asserting fealty to Christ, but you're not specifically rejecting it. And it's like, how does that work? What does that look like? You either believe all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, or you don't. If you you believe that, then then you're going to want to know what's his will. If the, if the tomb is empty, if the tomb is empty, okay, uh, and I need to remind everybody, well, you can go back, but I do need to redo that by the uh, empty tomb scene back there and help with the uh, RV project. Um, <clears throat> and I linked on how to do that in a previous dividing line, but I need to redo that again. Um, if the tomb's empty, then that one has been resurrected and is at the right hand of God and if a nation wants the blessings of God, you gotta deal with you gotta deal with him. There's no there's no neutrality. So what do you do about that? But at the same time, <clears throat> so those are the general things. But it seems to me like right now, I don't see that ref- I don't see that reformation. I don't see that third great awakening. I don't see that revival taking place. So why are we arguing about stuff that has no meaning 
And I can't see how it's going to have a meaning in my life. Why, why, why are we hitting the, hitting the brakes and going, wait, well, we can't even consider that. Don't you think if, if there will be this future situation where, for example, the second Psalm, which cannot be argued is not central to the New Testament's understanding of Christ. Okay, um, you know, verse seven. He said to me, "You are my son. Today I've begotten you." That sort of appears. Um, you know what the verse after that is? Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Now. One view of eschatology says, yep, after the second coming of Christ, yep, okay, all's taken care of then. Then Christ will begin reigning. And us posties go, but 1 Corinthians 15 says he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. And the last enemy is death. There's an order there. Um... And then others will say it was all meant spiritually. So the nations are, it's spiritual nations. Um, Except the next verse says, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shower them like a potter's vessel. That's used to describe Christ's rulership right after his resurrection. Oh, so he is ruling, and he is ruling spiritually, but not just spiritually. So, if the son asks of the father, give me the nations as my inheritance, is, is the father capable of doing that? Because, see, there's a lot of theological systems that say, no, it's got to be free will. So we, we can't even really be having this discussion with the non-reformed, to be honest with you, uh, because they have... Again, I'll just straight up front. They have an idol in the way. The idol of man's free will, which scripture does not teach. But I just I came to the conclusion in, in looking at it, it's like, have I just simply bought into the idea that's just too much for God? That's too much for him to do. So let's say he does that. Let's say those passages that talk about uh, they'll come from the coastlands seeking after the law, law of Yahweh, they'll come to Mount Zion and all the rest of this stuff. Let's say all that happens. And now we're in that situation where the majority, not just a loud minority, which is how we're generally ruled now, but the majority of people actually give evidence not of some external relationship to a church, but changed hearts and minds. Oh, can you imagine how different this nation would be? If a majority of people had changed hearts and minds, I can't imagine the paradise it would be. I can't, you know, you could actually open a store and you wouldn't be looted. You wouldn't have people just coming in, walking out with your stuff. And there wouldn't be any abortion clinics uh, because people would be ashamed. There would be good, proper shame in a society like that just because of all the people living in a a godly life around everybody else. But don't you think that if that kind of work of the Spirit was going on, that it might also result in a significantly unified Christian church? Because I have felt, I have felt and said for a very, very long time, a unified Christian church is a blessing upon a nation. And therefore, if God's judgment is coming upon a nation, well, look around. Look around. Look how, I mean, on the last program, I tried to sort of bring people together. And I tried to avoid extremes. I tried to define terms. I tried to say, you don't have to agree with me, but I think it's important that we all understand 
what's actually being said because, you know, one thing my experiences and Doug and I are doing another sort of S dialogue tomorrow morning. And in fact, we'll be talking about his book. Um, oh, Rich is going. Oh, good morning. Hi. Well, you'll be working on the RV after we get done with the sort of S dialogue. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, it It is on my Google calendar, but I forgot to probably mention it to you, but you probably haven't looked at my calendar for a long time. Anyway, anyway, we're probably going to be talking about his book, Mere Christendom. And, and, you know, I've already read it. I get the vibe. But there are specifics that I, as a Baptist, are like, don't you think that if we are in the midst of a move of the Spirit, that there will be even greater unity? Because, like I said, I've learned in my conversations with Doug over the years, that we've been doing the Spirit of S Dialogues, I've gone into some of our conversations thinking we were going to be a good distance apart, and by the time we got done and defined our terms... And said, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? We were a lot closer than we thought. Didn't mean we still saw eye to eye. And so I was trying to take that middle road, not the via media of Anglicanism, which has led to a complete dead end, but trying to go to Scripture and bring some light and there's just so many people right now that just, they have no interest in it. They have no interest in unity. They have no interest in hearing another perspective. At all. And I would just think if the Spirit of God were active in our world, some tells me we would, especially those of us in the body, we'd get along better. We'd get along better. I, I, I think some of our Divisions are the result of that. Um, that they're very much closely related to that. Um, one more thing, uh, as we only have a few minutes left in the program, and now Rich is trying to figure out how he's going to do everything tomorrow. Um, there is a... I'm shifting gears here, a little bit. There is a concerted effort uh, going on in certain quarters um, to try to cancel us, not in the sense of get us off of social media, though I'm sure they wouldn't mind, but to say to people, you know, we once recommended this guy and his books and stuff like that, but, you know, uh, we don't think that you should be listening to what he has to say anymore. And the reason for this is always the same. Um, there are people who are seeking to change the directions and the outlook of certain organizations. And that becomes really obvious when you compare people who've been teaching and saying the same things for decades on end and the fact that other people are going a different direction. So I keep hearing from people on Twitter. You know, for example, I responded to a guy named Paul Hess a couple weeks ago. Well, maybe a couple months ago now. And I refuted what he had to say, demonstrated it was just completely bogus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he blocked me on Twitter. Hey, I don't have any problem being blocked on Twitter. Um, I have a huge block list. Profanity, anything like that, boom, gone. No problem. But he blocks me on Twitter and then proceeds to lie about me. And so I have to, I'll end up, somebody will send me something and say, hey, do you know why this person's saying this? And I, even when I try to go back and like trace a thread to figure out where did all this start, it's hard to do because, well, this person controls who can, you know, you know and you have to go into an incognito window and 
see who said what and all that kind of stuff. So, for example, Paul Hess uh, posted, and again, again, had to do the roundabout thing to get this stuff. Remember when I labeled James White a false teacher for his aberrant Trinitarianism and all the flack I got? If we look at an old James White debate by his own stated standard at the time, 2004, James White would consider 2023 James White a heretic. And so what these guys are doing, and sadly, they claim to be Reformed. Reformed people can be the biggest jerks on the planet, just in case you're wondering. Um, what they're doing is they're making assumptions. And so there's a, there's a number of people who are simply lying about me. Uh, I've seen people saying that I'm EFS, E-R-A-S. Anyone who says that is a liar. And I'm not saying it's just misinformed. I have refuted that so many times that now it's just simply straight up liar. Um, he's a monothelite. <laughs> even, even, the, even the thing they're, they're quoting. Can I point something out? They're quoting from a debate on papal infallibility with Robertson Jenis from Florida. None of these guys have the guts to ever do a debate like that. And you know you don't. You don't. You'll block me, lie about me, hide, and you'll never get out there and put your theology on the line in that type of a context. You'd never do it. You shouldn't do it. It would be a disaster. But you know you would never do it. And so they're quoting from a debate on a completely different subject where St. Genis brought up monothelitism. Now, St. Genesis' argument there basically was, well, you can't tell between duothelitism and monothelitism just based on Scripture, so you need to have the magisterium. Huh. That's something I've warned a number of people about even today, that maybe a lot of this stuff has to do with promoting a form of tradition that becomes itself authoritative. Huh. Interesting how that actually proves my point. Anyway, and I'm defending a orthodox position there and then they're assuming that somehow I've changed my view today because now we're talking about amongst Protestants, not just dealing with the monothelic controversy and the fact that it demonstrated that Honorius was condemned as a heretic for hundreds of years by Roman Catholicism with so much for papal infallibility. Um, but now what we're talking about is where is the dividing line between identifying something as a biblically mandated belief and a creedally decided belief? And where is the line in all of this where you, you pass into speculative theology, where you leave the realm of apostolic revelation, you leave the realm of Here's an apostolic teaching, here's an apostolic teaching, and here's an apostolic teaching. When you put those three apostolic teachings together, they demand that we believe this. Okay, that becomes a first order derived from the necessity of scriptural teaching belief. But when you keep going to the next step, next step, the next step, you eventually get into a great deal of speculative theology. And there is a lot of that out there. And there has to be, we have to have a sound and meaningful methodology for determining what is what and which is which. And so these guys, instead of looking at what I've published or something like that, they're trying to find something because they're desperate. They can't take me on directly. They know that. They know that. Every single one of them hides behind all this anonymity and stuff like that. And they would never walk up to me directly in a situation and try to establish their point. Because they, they know I'm going to grab one of these things and go, all right, let's sit down. Let's go here. And they can't go there. They know that. They know that. The stuff that they are trying to turn into the test of orthodoxy comes from centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and sometimes millennia after the apostles. And they know that. But they're brave in their Facebook chat rooms. Anyway, and so they're, 
coming to conclusions. Well, I think about Neil Socinian and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And and I heard somebody who likes to listen to James White say this, and they were wrong about something, and therefore James White must be secretly wrong about this too. It's pretty amazing. It really, really... I feel sorry for a lot of these guys because if you're spending your life... I I don't have time to, to... Even if I wanted to chase certain people around who I know are very clearly... They're going to various schools. They are slandering me behind my back. I know who you are and I know what you're doing. And I feel sorry for you. But here's... And we'll wrap up with this. Here's what you need to understand. Does it bother me that there are people who maybe are not getting the information they need to do the ministry they're called to do because they've been lied to about me and my material would have helped them to do what they needed to do, but they're not going to have it. And does that bother me? Sure. But in the long run, this is what happens. I'm just telling you, nice thing about getting older is you get to see the long run. I remember very clearly and I was going to grab it, but I forgot to. Back in, when I was in seminary, the big name in Reformed seminaries was Westminster. Westminster, Philadelphia. This is even before California was even founded, I think. And when Westminster spoke, people listened. <laughs> you know? And so Westminster comes out with a book against theonomy. Now, I... What's theonomy? I don't know. I wasn't something that I'd really heard of or anything like that. And Westminster says it's bad. And so it must be bad. And so I concluded that's not something I want to even hear about. And if I would hear somebody saying anything, it, oh, I hope that's not that theonomy thing because Westminster says it's bad. And so you can get young people, I was a young person at the time, you can get young people to do what you want them to do by using your authority. But it doesn't last forever. And eventually, what has happened over and over again, when I've had people slandering me and lying about me, and so I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, you know, so long, I just hated you because I had been told this and I had been told that. And then YouTube came along. And those recommendations on the side, all of a sudden, one of your debates popped up. And I listened, I listened to the debate. And I was stunned at the clarity of your presentation. You weren't saying any of the things I've been told you were going to be saying. And I listened to another one, and then I got a book, and I discovered I had been lied to. And I've actually had people apologize to me. It's, people said, I'm so sorry. I told other people to, that, that you're a bad guy, too, and I've, I've tried to contact as many of them as I could remember, but uh, please forgive me. That's what happened. And so if you're going to be going around telling people, oh, he no longer believes what he used to believe, or he's a monothelite, or he holds the EFS, or he's a neo sassinian they're all lies. You know they're lies. You know deep down in your heart they're lies. I don't know how you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. But here's the problem. When you tell those lies, other people will find out about what the truth is. And when they find out, they may be coming back to you to ask, why did you lie to me? But it, does, it just doesn't last for long. Lies are not, you know, lies don't have long-lasting lives because they're in God's world, and eventually God's truth runs over every lie. And so I would just ask anybody, if you're going to receive testimony against me or anyone else, be a true Christian and double-check. It's so easy in our day with social media and everything else to accept slanderous assertions about other people. 
I'm thinking about one very well-known individual. I've never met him. We had one exchange of emails once. I've not read his books. I don't know if he's read mine. But a lot of people say a lot of bad things about him. I've just never bought into all the bad stuff. I'm just like, not my style, but I'm just not going to join in with this kind of thing. Um, And you know what? Your conscience will be so much lighter when when you do that. It, it, it really, 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 really will. Um, so anyway, um, so covered a bunch of that stuff. Uh, like I said, um, tomorrow, I, I don't know when that will drop, but probably that's normally like by Wednesday of next week uh, when the Swear Vest Dialogue drops. And, um, but... Pray for Rich now, especially pray for Rich now because now he's got to work harder because uh, he didn't, you know. What can I say? Um, you know, if he already had everything put together and in the unit, we could just do it there. See, but doesn't. So who who can he blame? He'll blame me one way or the other. He'll, he's going to blame me. Um, and because uh, I did think about reminding him of it but i didn't so there you go and so he already has the look on his face like oh woe was me i i i'm so abused <laughs> and i'm gonna abuse you that's 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 what's yeah i see what's coming i don't it's gonna be it's gonna be rough anyway kids uh so next week uh it's gonna be busy but we're going to do our best to be as much on schedule as we possibly can be, even though we will be running around and doing all sorts of stuff and hoping that certain places that say they're going to do work for us actually do it on time and things like that. You can never really trust that. We'll see you next time. God bless. <laughs>